5: You're listening to the fourth season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, murder below the Nat line. For photos and additional information, please go to ajc.com slash breakdown. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at AJC Breakdown.
6: We were 100% convinced that he did it. I mean, well, I wouldn't seek the death penalty on somebody I thought was innocent? It's just not, it's too much trouble.
4: I think the real question is, is why won't the courts do something about it after it happens, and it's clear that a miscarriage of justice has occurred? And I think the answer to that is, is the, the courts just don't care. I still stand by him, the way I voted in the, in the trial with the evidence we got there. There was not a doubt to me then.
5: So,
6: that's it. You know, I mean, all I could think was, that's it? He's gonna spend the rest of his life in prison? Nobody cares?
2: It was almost fall in Adel, but this little city is way below what we in Georgia call the Nat Line. It's almost in Florida. This far south, summer doesn't relax its grip until well into autumn. So September 19, 1998, was still hot and muggy. High 80s, a million percent humidity. In this gloom, around one or two o'clock in the morning, Donna Brown was closing up Adele's Taco Bell. She was the night manager, and it was her first week on the job. A sitter was back at her trailer with her seven-year-old son. She had just told the rest of the night crew to go home. Donna still had some work to do on time cards the kind of manager busy work that would keep her at the Taco Bell well after closing. Brown was 40 years old and a single mom. She was new on the job and she was about to make a big mistake. A mistake that would cost her her life. Brown toted up the night's receipts $1,732.36 and put the cash in one of those zippered bank bags. She walked out of the Taco Bell locked up and headed toward her black Monte Carlo in the parking lot. And that was her fatal mistake. Company rules said you never take the money out by yourself. If no employee is around to accompany you, you call the police and get an escort. But Donna Brown did neither of those things. The killer used a Charter Arms 44 Special, and the police believe it was fired only once in the parking lot that night. That single shot went through Brown's right eye, and lodged in the back right side of her skull. Police never recovered the murder weapon. Experts identified the make and model of the gun from the markings on the bullet that killed Brown. But there was other evidence. As Brown's body lay in the parking lot, her Monte Carlo was driven across I-75 from the Taco Bell. The driver abandoned the car at a closed-down pizza hut. A ski mask, believed to have been used by the killer, was found under the driver's seat. Police tested it for hair and fiber evidence, but they found nothing remarkable that would help identify the person who wore it. They also found no matches for the fingerprints they lifted from inside the car. As it turned out, though, police wouldn't need much forensic evidence at all. They had witnesses. The first to come forward was Marquetta Thomas. She pointed the finger at her sister's boyfriend, and what she told the police would have made anyone the prime suspect. His name? to Vanya Inman, Vanya, to his friends and family. Marquetta told police she saw Vanya riding a bicycle just a few hours before the shooting. She said he told her he was headed to the Taco Bell to get hooked up. Here's a portion of Thomas's interview with Adel City Police just two days after Donna Brown's murder.
1: As I was going home, Vanya was coming up from my house, and we were talking, and he was like, what we going to talk about Hook up? You want to go? I was like, no, nah, okay. I don't want to go. Vanya, Vanya said he was about to go to Taco Bell and get hooked up. Yeah. And tell me again what you mean by, think, thinks you he means by that. Get free food. he okay. somebody who worked out.
2: What she said next was especially incriminating.
1: Do you know whether or not Vanya had a gun on him when you talked to him? When he said he was going to get hooked up to Taco Bell? Yeah, he. I seen the imprint in his pants. You said seen the imprint of a gun in his pants, in his pocket. In his pocket, yeah.
2: Marquetta said she didn't see him again until the next morning. He showed up at the house she shared with her two sisters. He brought two bags of diapers, four packs of pork chops, and there was more. Did
1: he have any other money? That yeah, morning? he had money, doc. Because when he was pulling out the seat, he, it was twenties and Like, don't worry, where I got the money first.
2: Did you hear that? She said he pulled out twenties and tens and said. Don't worry about where I got the money from. How much money would you I think say? I uh, or 400 It might have been more. But he yeah, had quite a bit of money, cash money on it? Okay. 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 Marquetta never said that Vanya admitted to her that he robbed the Taco Bell, but she claimed he had been talking with her about committing an armed robbery.
1: So tell us a little bit about
3: that.
1: He, I just always talking about he wants to rob a bank or a store and, what places do I know around here is the easiest to rob? Like I said, me and my sister worked in Stuckey, and mm-hmm. he was constantly asking us, where's Where's state, Get Where the camera? Get he did trip. ask you to go with him on yeah. the Stuckey
3: yeah.
2: That interview formed the first link in a chain that the police would soon wrap around Inman. About a month later, another key witness would emerge. Virginia Tatum. Tatum told police she had been standing under an awning at the Howard Johnsons. She was waiting for bundles of the Valdosta Daily Times newspaper that she would deliver around Adel. At the moment Brown was killed, Tatum told police, she heard something that sounded like a gunshot, but figured it was just a car backfiring. Then she saw Donna Brown's Monte Carlo coming fast across the bridge over the interstate. It turned down the street right in front of her and stopped at the old Pizza Hut parking lot about 100 yards away. She said she had a clear view of the driver through the open passenger window. She said she was certain she saw Inman driving the car, and she would later testify, quote, I'll never forget for the rest of my life what he looks like. His face will be etched in my memory forever, unquote. Several weeks after Tatum came forward, police found another witness who would prove even more central to the case. Kwame Spaulding was locked up on drug charges. He also was a jailhouse snitch. Spaulding had shared a cell with Vanya Inman, and he told investigators that Inman had confessed to killing Donna Brown. According to Spaulding, Inman said the woman at the Taco Bell started screaming when he tried to grab the money bag out of her hands. Here's what Spaulding told police.
1: Vanya was trying to snatch the money bag out of the white lady's hand while she was still screaming. And the next thing you know, Vanya said he pulled out the .44 caliber and squeezed the trigger.
2: These three weren't the only witnesses against Inman, but they surely provided the most damning testimony against him. But if this were an open-and-shut case, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Welcome to the fourth season of Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm glad to be back in the booth talking to you about criminal justice in Georgia. Over six episodes of Breakdown, I'll take you on a deep dive of the Inman case. We'll also raise the extremely unsettling question. On top of Donna Brown's horrific murder, could even more tragedy have been averted? I'll explain all this later on. But one thing's for sure, some of the most basic parts of this case don't make sense. And there's something else I know this is a profoundly sad case. A woman was killed for a handful of cash, for no reason really, and the man convicted of killing her did not get a fair shake in George's court system. You guessed it, there were breakdowns all along the way. And for the record, Inman says he's completely innocent. Did you shoot and kill Donna Brown in the parking lot that night at Taco Bell? No, I didn't. Did you have anything to do with the robbery that night. No, I didn't. That audio came from a phone conversation with Inman. He's now in Valdosta State Prison for killing Donna Brown. He had this to say about his situation.
1: I mean, I've been in this for almost, what, 20 years now. And I've been telling them the same thing, same story. And now they see. Now they see from their own evidence. And it's like, hey, this is your evidence. And you're saying, you know, like, nah, we're going to keep him in prison anyway. That's not fair. That's not right. This ain't a pretty sight. It's not like, you know, it's they sent me to a prison where people are walking around and they're just chilling or whatever, getting diplomas or degrees or something. They're not doing none of that. Only thing that they're doing is a bunch of stabbings, a bunch of chaos. A lot of people have to do this or like me, I have to be you know, aggressive towards people, because if I don't, I'm going to be the food for other people, and I don't want to be like that. I just get angry, then I get sad, then I get angry, then I get sad. Because I don't really understand, you know, how people say that they don't want people to be in prison for stuff that they didn't do.
2: So how did I come to be talking with this man convicted of murder? Just like about everything else in my professional life, it started with a lawyer or to be precise, a law professor, an associate dean even. Her name is Jessie Sino. She teaches at Georgia State University's law school. I'll let her tell you how she became involved in Inman's case.
7: I was over at the Innocence Project, basically just hanging out, talking shop with the lawyers um, about various cases they had going on. And they brought up this case and talked about, you know, uh, Devania and new kid in town and... They had been pursuing it for a few years, and it, it just really it struck me as a Southern Gothic. I mean, you couldn't script a Innocence Project case if you were trying in terms of fictionalized writing. This is just a case from start to finish that had errors and omissions and problems and defects. and it, And it was also a case where you could see that this guy is kind of one of those clients who just gets lost in the system.
0: Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com.
2: To hear Sino tell it, this sure looked like a bad case. But was Inman a bad guy? He had, after all, been convicted of murder. And he had a criminal record as a juvenile, even before the murder. How she wondered, would he look and sound in person?
7: I think about three or four months after initially looking at the case, I drove out to the prison to meet him. Um, and for me, I, I always if i'm if I'm interested in a case and, and I want to do work on it, I want to meet the person. I want to hear from them directly. Um, and i was I was very much touched with how. Time stopped for this man in 1998, and he relives the same two weeks of his life over and over and over again. And and in some ways, he, he hasn't been able to grow up or become an adult. You know, he was 20 years old when he went into jail for this and then never saw the light of day again. And it's just, it's sad. And, Talking to his family and his mom, um, you really feel they love him so much, and he is sincere, Uh, he's definitely stubborn, Uh, but he's maintained his innocence from day one. And I wanted him to look me in the eye and tell me why he was innocent and talk to me about his case, And, and I believed him.
2: Sino took an indirect path to the law. Thinking she wanted to be an actress, Sino first attended the University of Southern California, where a lot of young actors go to be discovered, or not. But she made her own discovery. She didn't want to be an actor. She transferred to the University of Central Florida and made another discovery. She studied under Henry Lee. He's a renowned forensic scientist who played a role in the O.J. Simpson trial, the John JonBenet Ramsey case, the Lacey Peterson murder, and many other high-profile cases. So then, for Sino, the way forward seemed clear. She wanted to be like Quincy M.E., the TV pathologist who always seemed to find justice for both the living and the dead. But a conversation with Dr. Lee sent her in yet another direction.
7: I remember asking him a couple of different times. I was trying to figure out, I was a junior in college and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And he mentioned the Innocence Project and that he was doing some work with Barry Shack. Then I ended up reading this book called Actual Innocence, and it was just incredibly compelling. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a totally different way of using my scientific knowledge uh, that I didn't really think about.
2: She decided to go to law school and start her own innocence project, and the University of Miami gave her a scholarship to do it. In her second year, she co-founded the Wrongful Convictions Project with one of the teachers there. She found that proving someone innocent may have been noble, but undoing a guilty verdict is sort of like untying the Gordian knot or pulling the sword from the stone. It often looks and feels impossible.
7: I get asked this a lot of, well, why do you keep doing it when you lose most of the cases you work on? And it's because these clients need somebody who, who cares and who helps them you know, gives them a voice because otherwise they, they would fall through the cracks. And the results a lot of times suck, but they actually keep me going.
2: After law school, Sino clerked for a year for a federal judge and then accepted a job at a San Francisco law firm specializing in white-collar crime. But she found that the partner track was not her track. It held less allure for her than trying to get innocent people out of jail.
7: At a certain point, it was the mentality of, if I wanted to go down the partner track, I really needed billable hours with paying clients and people on death row <laughs> don't really do that. Um, so that's when I started thinking about becoming a teacher and it was a way for me to keep doing the pro bono cases.
2: She accepted a job at Georgia State's Law School in 2009. By then, Davanya Inman had been behind bars for 11 years. During Sino's first month, she reached out to the Georgia Innocence Project and said she wanted to get involved. She wound up supervising GSU law students who worked for the project. For the Inman case, she recruited some of her own students to join the cause. Two of them have stayed on for more than a year. Michael Williford grew up south of Atlanta and didn't start law school until his mid-30s. But he'd pretty much always wanted to be a lawyer since the county government moved to take part of his family's property by eminent domain when he was 10 years old. He says he figured his parents could have used a lawyer at that time, so he decided to become one himself. But first, he enlisted in the Navy serving four years to save up money for law school. Adel lies 190 miles down Interstate 75 from Atlanta. Williford and Sino made that trip several times to research Inman's case. Initially,
6: I had my doubts. When Dean Sino inherited this case from the Innocence Project, and I got my, my first exposure to it, I had spent a semester as an extern at the Innocence Project. So I had seen a number of, of solicitations from inmates. It can become very depressing because it is very infrequent that something comes across your desk that might even be worth investigating and in an even smaller portion of those cases actually turn out to that the the individual is innocent of the crime of which they've been for which they've been convicted so so I, initially i was skeptical optimistic but a healthy dose of skepticism over time i came to believe that his he's telling the truth he's by no means a boy scout there's no question that the guy has done wrong in his life, but I don't think he committed this crime.
2: Months later, Williford and fellow student Maida Muhich had just gone through an intense round of interviews with a big law firm about a summer internship. That's a coveted job for many law students. Maida grew up in Sarajevo, Bosnia. Her family left Bosnia at the onset of the Civil War, when Maida was 16. She spent two years in Atlanta, then went to college in California, and ended up studying for a master's in architecture in New York. But architecture, she discovered, just wasn't part of her design. She returned to Georgia and entered law school at GSU. Michael and Maida were talking about those summer law firm jobs when Williford told her about the Inman case.
8: Mike told me about it, and I think immediately realized that I would be very interested in sort of getting involved, and then invited me on a trip to Adele with him and Jesse, Um, and that's really how it started for me. I got access to all the documents, looked at them, got in the car with them, and drove down to South Georgia. I'd never been to South Georgia before. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, Um, and we just started interviewing.
2: Soon after that, Maida met Inman in prison.
8: I didn't expect to be as scared of the prison as I was when I first got there, and they brought him to talk to us and there were two guards holding him and he was basically chained and he looked pretty miserable and really frightening because because he was in chains and they were walking him down the hallway and it just seemed, it seemed completely surreal. Um, but then when we sat down and started talking to him, he was basically like a 17-year-old man, a lot more gentle than I expected, at least at that time. Um, it was heavy, I don't know, it was really heavy.
2: As Michael said, and as I told you earlier, Devanya Inman had not been a model citizen up to the time Donna Brown was killed. He had a record as a juvenile, in spite of his mother's best efforts to keep him in line. No matter how far Dinah Ray moved her son away from trouble, on one occasion, completely across the country, trouble seemed to follow behind. Devanya was born in Adel, But Dinah moved him with her to Sacramento when he was three. She remarried and raised a family with four children. Inman had his first brushes with the law in Sacramento when he was a teenager. Mind you, some of these were very serious offenses. They were so serious his mom decided that her son needed to get away from Sacramento, far, far away. She sent him back to Adel. I sent
3: him to visit my family and... That was the worst mistake I could have ever made. I thought I was doing the right thing, taking him, you know, thought the country would be good for him. Little did I know. I mean, I have to live with the decision that I made. The rest of my life, that just haunts me every day. About a month or so after he'd been in jail, you know, I still hear his voice saying to me, Mom, I want to come home. Just like it's a recorder that plays over and over again that you can't stop. I'm always trying to keep myself busy so I don't have to stay still and listen to it. To have to sit and watch your son in prison for something he didn't do. Really hot with
2: Vanya had only been back in Adel for about two months when Dinah got a phone call from her family. They gave her the gravest of news. Her son had been charged with the murder of Donna Brown. Inman would stand trial in Cook County Superior Court. If you listened to the first season of Breakdown, you'll remember that Justin Chapman was charged with murder in the West Georgia town of Bremen, not its German namesake, the city of Bremen and that Chapman's Trial was held in Buchanan. Not Buchanan, as just about anybody else outside of town would say it. So, here we go again. It's Adel, not Adele. Adel is the seat of Cook County. And yes, it's just Cook. No trick pronunciations here. Adel is a tired little town with several empty storefronts downtown and the requisite Walmart on the other side of the interstate. A few hotels and several fast food restaurants hug the I-75 exit, clinging to the life that sometimes stops by on the way to Florida. One thing that does flourish here, the damn gnats. I mentioned George's gnat line at the beginning of this episode, and there really is one. The gnat line is actually a fall line, south of which you'll find the sandy soils in which gnats thrive. On especially hot and muggy days, the gnats cling to your face, you're always swatting at them, trying to clear them away, or trying indelicately to blow them off your face and out of your mouth. And invariably, while you're standing outside talking to someone, you can see a virtual cloud of them engulfing that person's face. A virtual cloud in this instance has a completely different meaning in ADEL. Inevitably, you're thinking, what must my face look like? And the answer is, I don't want to know. It's also inevitable that you'll ingest a few gnats, or maybe a bunch of them, and maybe they're starting a colony in your lungs. I know, disgusting. You'd think the people who live here would be used to them, would know how to deal with them, but they don't. The gnats are as much a plague to the locals as to the visitors. I asked practically everybody I met in Adel whether they ever get used to the gnats. The almost universal answer, no way. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluesteak, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. The county district attorney was confident of his case against Inman. He gave notice that he'd be seeking the death penalty. It was the first capital case in Cook County in 16 years. Inman would be appointed two local lawyers to defend him, David Perry, a seasoned trial lawyer and a former district attorney, and Melinda Riles, a public defender. Leading the prosecution was Bob Ellis, the Alapaha Judicial Circuit's district attorney for more than a decade. Here he is, describing the circuit.
6: All rural, so it's Cook, Berry, and Atkinson, Clinch, and Lanier. They're all kind of courthouse towns, some of them are on the square, but it was truly a circuit, you know, like the Old West, when you watch those westerns and they lock up somebody and they say, well, they say, "Well, the judge will be here on Thursday. You know, so that's kind of the way that went.
2: You'll hear more from and about Bob Ellis later, and some of it will leave you shaking your head in amazement or disgust. Ellis' second chair was assistant DA Tim Edson, who was regarded as a skillful trial lawyer. Long after the trial, Ellis and Edson would be united in another courtroom under altogether different circumstances. Presiding over Inman's trial was Superior Court Judge L.A. Buster McConnell. McConnell had to be brought in from another circuit because the local judge couldn't hear the case. McConnell had already overseen a number of high-profile death penalty trials. Here's what he told the lawyers during a break in Inman's trial. Quote, I've done I don't know how many death penalty cases, and I never, never get to the point where I relax," unquote. McConnell said he can't sleep for days before a death penalty trial and can't sleep days after it's over. Why, he said, I'm one of the most intense people you'll ever see. I've had five heart attacks, he said. I don't have but half my heart left. I battled cancer, beat it. Battled aneurysms, beat it. I couldn't beat baldness though, but I'm working on that, he said. By 1998, I'm not sure whether the judge had heard more death penalty cases than he'd had heart attacks. But I can tell you that Buster McConnell is one tough jurist. When I spoke to him this spring, he was a senior judge and still presiding over cases. Inman's trial would take place almost three years after the murder of Donna Brown, in June of 2001. To get an idea about the pool of prospective jurors, a lay of the land, so to speak, I talked to Tom Thomas. Thomas, now in his 70s and retired, practiced law in Cook County for decades. I
4: never counted my cases, but I probably tried more than 100 cases here. But I grew up here, except when I went to school and I was in the Army in Vietnam for two years. I've always lived here, so I know a little bit about the community. It's a big farming community, so we have a lot of farmers. Not as many as we used to when I was growing up. And the reason being is, in the 80s, time got difficult, so the small farmer couldn't make it.
2: Cook County farmers cultivate a good share of watermelons, sweet potatoes, pecans, cotton, and tobacco. Around the time of Donna Brown's murder, one of the county's largest employers was Del Cook Lumber Company, it operated a large mill near the railroad tracks. It's closed now. By the time the Inman case went to trial, the entire county's population was just under 16,000 people. Thomas said Cook County jurors have long been extremely civic-minded.
4: When striking a jury, you get rid of the ones you think the other guy wants, and that ends up with what I call the leftovers. But, and I want to make this point, though, and I've said this about Cook County jurors, Once they put that hat on as a juror, they get real serious, in my opinion, about their job and their responsibility. And so, if I had my best friend on there, so to speak, I wouldn't necessarily always depend on him voting my favor. And I can't say that ever happened. I'm just using that as an example. They took it seriously. And one more thing. I think there's 60-something churches in Cook County which means, in my opinion, a lot of good Christian people live
2: here. Before we get to the actual trial, I have to share something with you that blew my mind. It happened during jury selection. I'm sad to say that we have no audio of this trial. The tape recording, which would be nearly 20 years old now, is nowhere to be found. So I handed Jesse Sino the trial transcript. We talked through an exchange Judge McConnell had with one potential juror. This woman is trying to get out of jury service, as many people try to do. But on the face of it, she appears to have a legitimate gripe.
7: If somebody really shows that they are not going to serve on this jury, or or they have no desire to, or they're going to be distracted, I mean, they're going to get kicked at some point during this process. But once you take a look at the judge's response to this particular juror, it is appalling just appalling so for example this juror you know she she's talking about her children and she really you know she gets very honest
2: here's what she told judge mcconnell i can't get anybody to take care of the kids that long a time or stay home with their father he drinks and i wouldn't be able to concentrate worrying about them
7: and so the court the judge volunteers and says well we can always call the department of family and children's services to put them in a foster home and that's just insane that you've just threatened a juror to put her children in foster care to force her into jury duty. I mean, that that just never happens on a case. And the court says it's not just a one-off sort of threat to get her to calm down. And then she says, again, I'm not gonna be able to concentrate on the case, and he says, well, there's a lot of folks in worse shape than you are, and you have had plenty of time to make arrangements for that, and we can get foster families or somebody to take care of them. And you're just, where, well, just the audacity and, you know, it's... It's essentially trying to draft jurors into service by threatening to take away their kids, which I'm pretty sure they had enough jurors if this woman really couldn't serve to let her go. And I think even, you know, the prosecutor and the defense attorney are like, just let this woman off.
2: And you guessed it, this juror was not picked to serve. Next on Breakdown some shocking developments during Inman's death penalty trial.
7: So you've got this situation where now you've got witnesses who are getting ready to testify in this case or have already testified in this case, and they're saying, oh, by the way, we have slept with or danced for one or maybe two of the jurors uh, that are sitting listening to this case right now.
5: Breakdown was reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Halleck's, Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. Original breakdown theme music composed and performed by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen. Additional music composed and performed by Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, AKA C1 and C2. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Burt Roten, Monica Richardson, Bo Emerson, Melanie Stolte, and all the great folks at the AJC, Buddy Hall, Chris Nicholson, Jesse Sino, Michael Williford, Maida Muhich, and Lynn Taylor.
0: Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada.